Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridge, the editor of Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by political journalist and polling guru Peter Kellner and Dr Alice Lilly, a senior researcher at the Institute of Government. And today we're going to try and unpack and make some sense of the events of last week at Westminster and pose a more fundamental question, has the Constitution survived Boris? We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. As we speak, candidates are throwing in the towel or or jumping in. It's all a bit chaotic just down the road. And as everyone knows in last week, Boris Johnson has, we think, almost certainly stepped down as leader of the Conservative Party, although he didn't actually say that in so many words. And more than 50 MPs have resigned from government and we're in the middle of a contest with around 11 contenders vying for the top spot. So I suppose the starting point for the conversation, Peter and Alice, is that is that Johnson is still in number 10, and he says that he'll stay there as a caretaker prime minister until September. And I guess the, the, the question is what will happen next and what this episode has meant for the British Constitution. Peter, if, if I can start with you first, perhaps you could just start with general reflections on this last a- astonishing week and where we're heading and whether you think Johnson will last in in number 10 until September? Alan, it's it's not an easy question to answer. I'll tell you why. Because um, if everything goes as designed, that is, Conservative MPs over the next few days whittle down the list to two candidates, and those two then go out to the membership, then they probably are waiting till early September. But there has been some talk that whoever comes second amongst the MPs and therefore has the right to go to the local members along with the front runner, if that person who comes second says, oh, well, actually, I withdraw at this point, then you get the position when there's only one candidate left. It's what ended up happening, if you remember, in 2016, after David Cameron resigned, the MPs whittled it down to Theresa May and Audrey Leadsom, um, And Ms. Ledsom gave a very unfortunate interview to um, The Times, um, which led to her her being deep in the doo-doo. She pulled out and David Cameron had to leave Downing Street a month before he expected it. Andrew Ledsom was out, Theresa May won by uh, default. Will that happen this time? Probably not, because it does look like, we perhaps come on to this in a minute, 
ending up as a race between Rishi Sunak and the last right-winger standing. And I don't think the right-wingers um, in the Tory party would allow Rishi Sunak to win by default. So I think it is more likely than not that we will go through to September. And, and you think, I mean, there, there was a lot of unhappiness just after Johnson's um, appearance on the, on the steps of Downing Street at his um, decision that he was going to stay put. And people, you know, I think there's going to be a vote of confidence, which I'm sure the Tories will win. But he's going to be there for some time. Maybe, maybe uh, Alice, you can answer this. How much does it worry you that you've got somebody who his own party have declared no confidence in and, and yet essentially has a pretty free hand to do things for the next two months? It's certainly a really strange position to be in. Not only that you have a prime minister, as you say, potentially there for a few months, who doesn't really have the support of his own parliamentary party. He also doesn't even have the support of some of his own cabinet members, including cabinet members who were only appointed to their roles sort of this time last week. So that is a strange thing. It's already sort of worth saying that there is, at least by convention, some limits on what Johnson will be able to do in the next few months. You would not be expecting him to make any big new kind of policy announcements, to launch any new changes in policy, to take the government in a new direction. That is something that is upheld by convention, but you would imagine that perhaps his own cabinet and his own MPs would also uphold that themselves. But I suppose what this comes back to is the idea in the British system of a sort of caretaker prime minister, of an interim government, is one that's quite fuzzy. It's not really a concept that we have in as clear a way as perhaps some other countries. We don't have a sort of order of succession in the way that they do in the United States. And Johnson decided that, yes, he would step down, but he would stay as an interim. What's really interesting is that actually on Thursday, initially, there were a lot of Conservative MPs who were publicly suggesting that they weren't particularly happy with that, actually the party does seem to have come around to it. And as though, as you mentioned, Alan, we're expecting Labour to hold a vote of no confidence in the government. It doesn't look like they will lose that. So he will you know, be able to kind of carry on. But I think it's just a reminder that this is one of those areas of our system that is perhaps a little bit unclear. Can I add something, Alan, if I may? to that because there are a couple of kinds of precedent the most common one is what happens during a general election campaign when the outcome is uncertain and it's accepted that governments can't take new decisions though very very occasionally uh, there is a major international event margaret thatcher went off to a i think it was a g7 uh, meeting in the middle of, of one of the election campaigns and had to take certain decisions um but the more interesting one, um, a bit more recherche, is the weekend after the 2010 election, when we didn't know whether Gordon Brown was going to cobble together uh, some kind of coalition government or whether he'd hand over to David Cameron. It wasn't resolved till Tuesday. That very weekend, uh, the Greek financial situation blew up. And Britain, along with other European countries, had to take some pretty quick decisions that weekend what to do. It couldn't wait for a new British government to be formed. And Alistair Darling, who was the outgoing Chancellor of the Exchequer, went to Brussels, deeply pissed off because he was knackered and thought he'd be, you know, back relaxing up back in Edinburgh by, by now. But what he did was he made contact with George Osborne, 
And so they basically negotiated together, talked together, and agreed a common line so that whoever was going to be Chancellor of the Exchequer a week later would be able to live with the decision. So just suppose there is a, a, an emergency decision that has to be taken in the next few weeks. One would hope that Boris Johnson would ensure actually genuine cabinet government and get a consensus on the cabinet and amongst the rivals for the leadership as to what to do. But one of the reasons why people don't want Boris Johnson to stand down is they're not sure whether they trust him to behave in a collegiate way if he has an opportunity for some last personal... The, the problem with what you said, Alice, was, was those two words, by convention, are, are, they're very bearing a heavy load in that sentence, aren't they? I mean, the, the whole problem with the Johnson government, isn't it that, that the conventions that we thought bound politicians were all thrown out of the window? And so... The, the past is no guide to the future. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Throughout his premiership, Boris Johnson has shown that he's somebody who doesn't particularly feel himself to be bound by those conventions. He doesn't seem particularly fussed by them. I think in this particular instance, though, there are some of those political mechanisms that would uphold those conventions. I think, as you were saying, Peter, if Johnson did not try and pursue a collegiate approach with his cabinet on a particular issue that might come up over the summer, I think he really would run into trouble. And I suppose almost a way of viewing this is that Johnson essentially lost the support of his own MPs. He almost lost his own parliamentary majority. That has been effectively given back to him, but it has been given back to him on the basis that he is now an interim and very weakened prime minister who will eventually stand down. So I suppose it is a convention, but there are those political support structures that could exist to enforce it if if it ultimately came to that. The Johnson government, you would think, makes the strongest possible argument for those who are on the side of a written constitution that, that, that after, I mean, we, we've had Peter Hennessy, who famously coined the good good chap's theory of government that, that you can stumble through somehow as long as people behave like good chaps. And I think even Peter Hennessy is now saying, well, actually, the problem with that theory is when you get somebody who doesn't behave like a good chap. Have either of your minds been changed? Let's start with you, Peter, about whether we need to write a few more things down or maybe a lot more things down. It's a tricky question. I, I don't believe a written constitution is the answer to all our problems. A century ago, one of the best ever constitutions, according to most people who have looked at these things, was written. It, it guaranteed a gender equality, human rights, free speech, judicial independence, a fair voting system. That was the Weimar Constitution for post-First World War Germany. It didn't save it from catastrophe um, a dozen years later. So written constitutions are all very well but you need a healthy political culture. Words themselves, you know, look, look, you know, look at America under Trump and the way the Supreme Court has behaved. I'm not sure everybody would say that American um, uh, democracy, which is very firmly based in written rules, necessarily works out well. So I wouldn't, you know, I, listen, I don't think there's going to be a written constitution, um, but let's imagine we had one. Would it work? It'll work if enough people want to make it work. In the end, it's the culture that's decisive. The rules can be a helpful addition 
but the rules themselves I don't think can do it. I think I'm inclined to agree with Peter. I should I should say that in a previous life I was a historian of modern America for my sins and certainly the experience of that is very much that yes there is a written constitution but that does not exactly prevent a huge amount of wrangling over what that constitution actually means, how it should be interpreted, how it should be implied. So I don't think it's a panacea. That said, certainly what we've seen over the last few years is the way that our system is very reliant on convention, um, on conventions that are not always particularly easy to actually pin down or actually even find evidence of. Um, we were talking last week about something called the Lascelles principles, which are about the circumstances in which the monarch can refuse to grant a, an early election, which are essentially a set of principles derived from a letter that was once written to a newspaper. So, you know, these things can be easy. And there's a, a question about whether perhaps some of these principles should at least be made more accessible and sort of clarified, be that in a written form or not. But I certainly don't think a written constitution is necessarily the panacea that it is sometimes perhaps presented as. Can I just, I mean, just just test whether whether you think nothing should be written down or whether the Johnson government has lent weight to the side that says we, we ought to be writing down a few things. I mean, this in the last three years we've had a massive row over the prorogation of parliament attempt to rewrite the rules about MPs behaviors with Owen Patterson uh, breaking international treaties um, trying to weaken ministerial standards appointment of chums to the House of Lords I mean uh, are we saying that this uh, that the system is, is strong enough we don't need to write these things down or, or would it help to get to have have a bit more of a, a framework which can stand up to effectively a, a rogue prime minister, Peter? Um, well, let, 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 let me kick off. Um, I think there's a strong case for a number of very thick rules which are the sacrosanct. We already have the law which says Parliament can't last beyond five years, except by the explicit approval of the House of Lords, who happened in the Second World War. You know, America carried on having every four years election through the Second World War. Britain didn't, but it was accepted. So, I mean, two reforms that I think would be useful would be to entrench fixed-term parliaments in a way that they, it can't simply by, be amended or repealed by a majority vote of the House of Commons, which is precisely what happened. The coalition government, well, a dozen years ago, passed the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, but when Boris Johnson wanted to repeal it. He needed only a majority vote in the House of Commons, <clears throat> and he repealed it. I think proper fixed-term parliaments with, um, with, with making it much harder to overturn it would be a good thing. Um, and if one could manage it, some kind of reform of the House of Lords, so that it became a much more effective counterbalance to the House of Commons. At the moment, it's in practice incredibly rare for the House of Lords to go to the full distance and block something from the House of Commons. I think it lasted one about, Alice may, may correct me, but I think about 30 years ago over the prosecution of German war criminals. You know, it is incredibly rare. And that's partly because everybody accepts the House of Lords is far less legitimate than the Commons. So if one had a more legitimate House of Lords in some form, that then could act as a constitutional block on a House of Commons going bonkers or a prime minister going bonkers, I think that would help. I'm not sure beyond those, it would make much difference. I mean, I think those those two things 
as, as a sort of blocking mechanism against a, a mad prime minister, I think would help. And Alice, isn't the problem with these discussions that they, they're fine in theory, but let's say it's we're going to have a Starmer government next. This kind of stuff is going to be pretty low down his list of priorities. He won't want to gobble up parliamentary time on these things which don't appear to be terribly important until they are. It's one of the really interesting questions, I suppose, is is what is all of the future of this? Because there's two ways of thinking about it. So I suppose the first of those ways is that the next prime minister and potentially the next government will want to try and differentiate themselves from Johnson and from his time in office as much as possible. And actually trying to take a much stronger line on issues around standards and ethics and behaviour is a very good way of doing that. The other way, though, that this could go, and I think it's the way that's most concerning, is that actually public trust and faith becomes so damaged in sort of all of our institutions and in all of our politicians that actually all of our expectations, whoever is in government, whatever it is that they're trying to do, actually becomes so low that that in itself becomes even more damaging. So I think we're probably in a situation where it's it's too early to tell. You would hope, as I say, that some of the, the conservative leadership contenders would want to make standards and integrity a key part of that platform. And that's certainly the rhetoric that's coming from some of them. You would hope that any potential future Labour government would also want to do the same thing. But I think it's too early to, to realistically tell whether that will be the case or not. Peter, we have essentially, I suppose you could call it a, a caretaker government. Do you think are the main characters in this government and, and how would you expect the next couple of months to play out? Are you expecting anything dramatic to happen or, or do you think it's just going to be like the dying embers of, of the Johnson government? You're talking, you're talking political issues, not yeah. talking about the I mean, We have a, a sort yeah. of rather strange cabinet, which has been sort of botched together with some of the old chums coming in and some people, are, you really can't remember whether they've resigned or they're, they're back in or who is the Secretary of State for what. But what do you think the, the prospect for the next couple of months is well, going to be? As long as, as long as something doesn't blow up, I think it will be quiet because after all, Commons goes on its summer break, I think uh, you know, just over a week's time. Uh, so inevitably, Westminster will be will be quieter. You won't have that as well the parliamentary battles before a new Conservative leader and Prime Minister <coughs> is chosen. So, as Alice said, I I think the processes in government in Whitehall would stop Boris Johnson doing anything you know too mad of his own bat. So the one thing that might spoil this sort of serene, calm summer would be if some crisis blows up, domestic or international, something out of the blue, then action must be taken. Now, I would hope that even with Boris Johnson's ability to clout's convention, the pressure will be overwhelming for him to behave collegiately and even possibly to consult Labour, not because there's going to be an election this autumn, but when you have a prime minister with diminished legitimacy, you would want, if there were a genuine national crisis, you want some degree of national consensus in order to take any really difficult decisions. Do you agree with that, Alice? Yes, I do. I think, firstly, as Peter says, Parliament is going into recess in about nine, ten days' time, so you would expect that things will quieten down. Um, really, then the, the question becomes, 
is there something very unexpected domestically or internationally that happens? And as Peter says, you would hope and expect that actually in that moment, a prime minister would know that they need to act collegiately, not just with their own cabinet and their own party, but with parliament as a whole. I suppose the other thing it is worth saying, and this is less about the government and more about the leadership contest, is that, of course, the first stage of this leadership contest is happening incredibly quickly, whittling down these candidates to two in the space of just under a fortnight. And of course, some of those candidates are still cabinet ministers themselves. So we are in this sort of strange situation where we have a a weakened prime minister who we all know is standing down. We have a lot of people vying to replace him who are people in the cabinet of the prime minister that they brought down, but who's still serving him. So it's it's and just going to be in quite some an cases standing on a, a platform of denouncing the policy of the cabinet they were part of. Exactly, P- Peter. You're, um, can you explain for younger uh, listeners what the um, <coughs> yeah. what the lavender list was? Right, the lavender list went. Harold Wilson, who was Labour Prime Minister in the 60s, out for a while, then back briefly in the mid-70s. Um, when he resigned, retired, uh, left Downing Street, by our convention, that word again, an outgoing Prime Minister has a degree of freedom to uh, put people into the House of Lords and give them knighthoods, whatever. And Harold Wilson reputedly basically ticked off the, the Lavender List, a, a, a list written by his aide, Marcy Williams, Baroness Forgander, who'd, who'd drawn it up on, on a lavender-coloured piece of paper. And it has various ne'er-do-wells and, and, and people who were plainly unsuitable on the list. And there was... And Wilson, who, at the time, having had quite a poor reputation with many on the left in the 60s over issues like Vietnam and sort of somehow revived his, his reputation. And this rather diminished it, um, his departure. But he felt he had people to pay off. So Alice, as somebody who wasn't around, I imagine, at the time of the <laughs> listening to that bit of history, how likely is it that we might see a, a history repeating itself and Boris Johnson proposing all kinds of unsuitable people to peerages and knighthoods? And is well, there anything so- to stop him? Well, certainly there's been plenty of speculation over the weekend about assorted people who might appear on any kind of resignation honours list. I think some of the speculation has involved either the Prime Minister's father, it's involved Nadine Dorries, it's involved sort of all sorts of people. And, the and obviously, of the Daily well, Mail, editor-in-chief of the Daily Mail. Indeed. We'll have to wait and see whether that's the case. I mean, I suppose really what this comes back to, and it's a point you made earlier, Peter, is just the broader question of... House of Lords reform and appointments to the House of Lords. And several years ago, all the main political parties agreed that we need to urgently reduce the size of the House of Lords and that all parties should agree that they would put fewer people in the Lords. There would be a sort of two in one out system. And everyone thought, yes, this is a great idea. And nobody has really followed through with that. So, I mean, you would expect that there will be some resignation honours from Johnson. I think the question is absolutely, the way you put it, Peter, what what kind of legacy does he think he is leaving behind? How does he want people to remember him? Because this is something that will be, I think, something that people remembered. So he ought to be very careful. But really, this is a much bigger question than it is just about Johnson. It's about the whole way that we do appointments to the Lords. 
Can I raise one very particular point on this? Alice, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but the resignation on the list comes after the Prime Minister has left office. And therefore, technically, it is the new Prime Minister who puts the names forward to Buckingham Palace. So Wilson's lavender list was actually technically put by James Callaghan, his successor as Labour Prime Minister, to Buckingham Palace. And Callaghan agreed it because, you know, he was comfortable with his association with Wilson. Now, suppose Johnson puts forward some really obviously odious people. By the time he puts them forward, somebody who probably owes him no favours will be in Downing Street. So I just speculate whether, oddly enough, Johnson might be thwarted by a violation of the convention that the successor signs off the list. And the Johnson successor said, yeah, you can't have them. Be a remarkable little coder. (laughs) Peter, you've written a piece for Prospect's website today about the polling on the various candidates. And I suppose the interesting question which you deal with is from Keir Starmer's point of view, I suspect he was rather relishing for all his rhetoric, the thought of taking on, on Johnson. I think your conclusion is, if it were, say, Liz Truss, that would be that would not keep Starmer awake at night, but someone like Penny Morden might. Uh, absolutely. I, I don't know whether Keir Starmer is as divided in himself as I, I am between my view as a citizen that you want a sensible mainstream grown up as prime minister and my personal wish to see the back of a Tory government to have somebody who's completely unelectable as prime minister. Uh, I think on balance, I'm, I'm a po-faced citizen. I'd prefer a mainstream grown up. But from Keir Starmer's point of view, I think he would much prefer Liz Trust to be prime minister than either Penny Mordaunt or Rishi Sunak. You know, take Penny Mordaunt. I, mean, I think she's genuinely interesting because she's on the right, but not the fundamentalist right of the Tory party. But her backstory, she you know, spent her gap year working in a Romanian or- orphanage. She'd been a Royal Naval reservist. She's very popular in, in the House of Commons, partly because she doesn't take herself too seriously. She's one of the people that gen- people generally like to, to listen to. And I think she'd be quite a hard target, not least because after the Johnson years, somebody who's clearly grounded in public service would make a great change from the sort of Mr. Toad's politics of, of Boris Johnson. This sounds quite, it could be quite dangerous for Keir Starmer, Alice. I mean, I think, again, it's probably too early to tell. I think, I suppose that Labour will be split a couple of different ways, which, yes, is, you know, on the one hand, sort of thinking, well, finally, we've got rid of Johnson. You know, this is a government that has been weakened. But at the same time, they do not know who Starmer will be facing across the dispatch box come September. So there is a real kind of unknown aspect to that. And one of the things as well that compounds that, I suppose, is that, yes, people like Liz Truss, for example, are quite well known to the public. They have quite a high profile. But actually, some of the other candidates, like Penny Warden, for example, there is a little bit more of an unknown quality to them. The public is probably still yet to form a big view on those kind of candidates because they just don't really know them. And so if you're Starmer, that also means that you don't know how the public is going to react to that. So that's just an extra layer of uncertainty. I think if you'd said to Keir Starmer two weeks ago, would you take the situation that you now find yourself in? My guess is that yes, he probably would. But that certainly doesn't mean that, you know, the opposition is about to have a a smoother or easier time of it. It's worth remembering, uh, uh, Alan, that most voters who don't follow politics that closely 
and don't have a clear idea of, of more than a handful of people at the top of politics. A lot of the Tory contenders, there are two that the public have made their mind up about or have a strong view about. One is Rishi Sunak, because of his role as Chancellor during the pandemic, and the other is Priti Patel. Now, Priti Patel is toxic. I mean, if you gave Keir Starmer his, his most fervent wish, it would be up against Priti Patel at the next election. The Tories wouldn't stand a chance. At the time we're recording this podcast, we don't know whether Priti Patel would stand standing. or not. She wants to... Break, breaking she's news, not yeah. standing. Right, well, well, it has to be partly because, you know, the Tory MPs that have looked at the same figures that I've reported in the Prospect website and seen that Patel is an absolute no-no with the, with the wider public. Sunak is a real possibility. But for all the others, including Penny Morden, Sashi Javid, you know, Liz Truss and so on, you know, half or more of the public don't really know what they're like. And that means that... If any of them became prime minister, there's ample opportunity for their reputation either to, to climb or to crash. But we can't be certain how the public would react after a year or so of the What's prime minister. What's the general record? I mean, is that a, a fatal thing or is it? can it be an advantage if the public feel, well, I don't really know this person, but quite like the look of them. Can that play to their advantage or do people feel uncomfortable and they think, well, we, at least we know who Keir is, even if we think he's a bit boring or whatever they might think about him? It's an interesting question, Alan. I mean, take Jeremy Corbyn, for example, who fought two elections as Labour leader. In the first one, he did much better than anybody expected because the public hadn't really focused on him. He'd been Labour leader for about 18 months, but voters hadn't really clocked him. And he sounded very good on the hustings. He was a great campaigner. And he came close not to becoming prime minister, but to unseating Mr. May in the 2017 election. By the 2019 election, voters had worked out who he was, and the Labour crashed to their worst defeat since 1935. So there isn't a simple answer um, to how will people react to somebody they don't initially know. It could vary through time. John Major, interestingly, wasn't that well known by the general public when he became prime minister, but by virtue of the fact that, A, he seemed perfectly normal, and B, he wasn't Margaret Thatcher, who by then the public had really turned against. He did incredibly well for a few years, then after Black Wednesday, it all, all went wrong. But he did fight and win an election, well, 18 months after he became Prime Minister, and the Tories won the largest vote. This still stands as a record for any political party's popular vote. Alice, what, have we seen the last of Johnson, or could he be like Wilson and, and come back, or Heath, or Disraeli, or Gladstone? I mean, there are, there are Lots of historical examples, aren't there, of prime ministers you, you think of dead and buried, but they they don't agree. No, indeed. I mean, as far as we know, Johnson plans to stay on as a backbencher until the next election. Worth, of course, saying that his position in his constituency is not a particularly secure one. So if he does choose to stand at the next election, not sure he will, but if he does, then it's no guarantee he would be re-elected. In terms of what he'll do next, I mean, who knows, quite frankly. I think it's very difficult seeing him coming back to Parliament, or at least to the House of Commons, I should say, after next election. I think everything that we've seen from him so far, he has obviously many interests outside Parliament, so you would perhaps expect that he would pursue those. But also just politically, I do think that it would be incredibly hard for him to return to any kind of ministerial role. He is not somebody I don't think that anybody would see as any kind of committee chair or anything like that. Part of the issue, I think, is 
everything that has happened over the last week or so has happened so quickly that we've all been caught up in the drama. Actually, I think as time passes, we will all be able to reflect on on quite how astonishing it is that a prime minister has gone from being elected with an 80 odd majority to within three years being brought down by his own party. And I think that means politically we're unlikely to see him back in that kind of big political role in the Commons. I'm sure Alice is right. The only thing one should bear in mind is that what is obvious to outsiders like us may not necessarily be obvious to the (laughs) ex-Prime Minister. Um, I think the key is if Boris Johnson either doesn't fight or fights and loses, he sees the next election. That is the end of it. But, you know, Edward Heath, who was deposed by his party in 1975, he stayed on for, what, another 15 years or so in the House of Commons. And he, till well into the 1980s, 10 years after he lost the leadership, nursed the thought that he might be asked back, a bit like Charles de Gaulle in France in the late 1950s, sort of, you know, um, summoned back from Colby Lader Broadstairs to save a desperate nation. And he really believed this. Nobody else did, but he did. Peter, perhaps you can you can round this off. I mean, you've, you've been observing politics for a long time. How does this last week rate in terms of the the turmoil and earthquakes that you the many turmoils and earthquakes that you've seen in your career i mean it's absolutely extraordinary you know when when thatcher was the, the nearest equivalent was thatcher being deposed by our cabinet in late 1990 but then you had a quick contest it was over and the tory the wounds in the tory party to some extent healed i mean the europe remained a running sore but has remained ever since but functionally, the Conservative Party got back on an even keel on, on the following election. And what I find odd, though, is that the deposing of Johnson has been solely about his personal qualities, attributes, shortcomings, whatever. It hasn't really been about policy. And yet the occasion of the election is an absolutely critical moment in deciding the future political direction of the Conservative policy. It seems odd that what was, in an odd way, a non-political assassination is on the way to becoming a seriously major political event in terms of its consequences. Well, thank you very much, Peter and Alice, for joining us today. Thank you all very much for tuning in to hear this discussion. Uh, Who knows what will happen over the next uh, period of weeks or months. But if you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber, grab a copy of the latest issue of Prospect. Uh, There's another one out in about 10 days' time. Or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe, and you'll find a lot of fascinating pieces, including by Sam Friedman, David Miliband, and Sheila Hancock, as ever. Goodbye, stay safe, and join us in a week for the next episode of Prospect Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.